The Roland Garros Tennis Tournament is a two-week-long event held in Paris at the end of May every year. The event draws more than 600,000 spectators to watch the world's best tennis players compete to be the champion of the French Open. Not surprisingly, if you Google the name Roland Garros today, you'll see pictures of tennis courts and perhaps Rafael Nadal, who's won a record 14 times. Therefore, it may be surprising to most that Roland Garros was not a great tennis player. He was a pioneering aviator, a hero of France, and the world's first fighter pilot. I'm Brass. And I'm Mr. Chow. And we fly the F-15C Eagle single-seat air superiority fighter. But really, we're just average fighter pilots. So luckily, this podcast isn't about us. It's about the truly extraordinary fighter pilots who've come before us. Welcome to Fight History. Mr. Chow, you want to get into a little bit about the name, how we got to fight history, and why we're actually out here kind of, you know, just shooting all these words out into the void? Sure, yeah. So uh, we spent just about as long trying to come up with the name as we did working on this first podcast. <laughs> so uh, apologize for the, the lack of content here. But we got a great name. I think we really nailed it. Uh, so fight history uh, can mean a couple of different things, right? So first off, we're talking about fighter pilots. We're talking about history, right? Uh, but the term fight history has a special meaning in fighter aviation. Specifically, yeah. it's talking about your knowledge and your kind of your prediction of what's about to happen based on what you've seen in the past. Yeah, everyone talks about you have to study the past or study history so you can you know prevent mistakes from happening again in the future. But in a boiled down version of that, when you're in a dogfight, if you see something that's you know generating over time, for example, someone's 100 degrees behind you, and then he's 90, and then he's 80. You can use that fight history to predict, hey, I got to do something different because this guy is basically getting to a winning position or something, right? So that's what it means in a very uh, narrow version of what's fight history in a dogfight. But we also want to take that and use a broader version of let's study some of these fighter pilots from the past and kind of take their fight history so we can be better fighter pilots in the future. And so we figured... There's no better place to start than by studying the world's first fighter pilot, Roland Garros. Yeah, and so the full name there is Eugene Adrian Roland Georges Garros. Bit uh, of a mouthful there. Yeah, a lot of names. Uh, he's born on the island of Reunion, 1888. Uh, this this is an island that is uh, just east of Madagascar in the West Indian Ocean. Uh, I think they called it a... What was it? So... Now it's called the Department of France. They don't like to use the word colony. At the time, it was a French colony. Sure, okay. Um, but yeah, he was born uh, to a family of corsairs, which is pretty cool. So you can imagine he's growing up on a tropical island, and his family's basically telling him, hey, you know, your ancestors are basically French uh, pirates, uh, privateers. Uh, the corsairs were basically backed by the French crown, but were pirates. So like Marines. <laughs> Not quite. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, basically Marines, I guess, if you want to go there. Mr. Chow happens to be a former Marine. Uh, he doesn't quite look like a pirate, though. But the other cool thing about Roland's name is he's named after this famous French knight, or at least um, 
a poem of a knight called the Song of Roland. So he's growing up on a tropical island. His family is based off of all these pirates. He's named after a knight. It's kind of like a magical childhood for this kid. And eventually he goes to Vietnam to live with his family, right? They move from Reunion to Vietnam. So the the late 1800s, right? France has this huge colony, and his parents are basically moving around the French colonies. They start in Reunion, then they go to Vietnam. He's living on the banks of the river. And if you've seen Apocalypse Now, you can. Uh, there's one scene in the movie where they're going up the river, and they find this like really nice French little colony, essentially, in Vietnam, where you have all these French people living in this chateau in the middle of the jungle. Yeah, that, that was not his family. That was not his family. <laughs> he's on the river. He's hanging out with the Chinese and the Vietnamese kids to such an extent that his parents actually start to get worried that he's, quote-unquote, turning native. So they send him to boarding school at 11, and he goes to France. So he's got to get on a boat. He goes all the way to France. Uh, He misses his mother terribly, but he hates his father for sending him away. But it's kind of good for him, right? I mean, he gets there, and he kind of realizes, okay, I need to learn how to speak proper French, not this reunion French dialect that he grew up with, so now he can fit in with everybody there. He learns business skills, and eventually that kind of pays off for him because he's able to start his own sports car dealership so that by the time he's 20 years old, so this would be, what, 1908 now, he's got his own Gregoire sports car dealership in Paris right near the Arc de Triomphe. It's a pretty ideal spot to be. Yeah, it's. I can't imagine what it's like owning one of the first sports car dealerships in the world outside the Arc de Triomphe, just kind of cruising around Paris. That's pretty awesome. I think, but the other side of this thing is he's kind of always the outsider. And that's what you're going to see throughout most of his life. Like you can imagine he's the French kid in Reunion. Then he's the French kid in Vietnam. And then when he gets to France, he is now the kid who didn't grow up in France, who's living in France, who doesn't quite speak French the way everyone else does. But throughout all that, he's still able to succeed. He starts this car dealership. And maybe he, a little chip on the shoulder there. Yeah, a little chip on the shoulder. Independent guy, right? Uh, and he basically becomes this Parisian playboy. 1908. It's this great time to be in France, called the Belle Epoque, with a beautiful era in France, the calm before the storm of World War One. And it's just an awesome time for him to kind of be cruising the streets in his sports car. And he looks like the playboy. Uh, so we've got a picture of Roland Garros up right now. He looks like your typical fighter pilot. If you would imagine a fighter pilot from World War One, he's got the mustache. He has this, uh, Mr. Chow, what's that hat called? Do you know? It's a beret. He has the beret on backwards. You know what I mean? Mr. Chow actually just did his, uh, he did his PT test wearing a beret and a track suit. He's a very. I think uh, it was more like a, a, a Peaky Blinders hat, whatever. That's those true. Are called. Yeah, yeah, he's got a Peaky Blinders. But I mean, hat, I guess but. it looks like a beret if you put it backwards. Yeah, but anyways, you can imagine like Roland is living the dream. He's got his beret on. He's got a sports car, but he is missing something, and he finds out what he's missing when he goes to the first Paris air show in 1909. So he gets to the air show, and. He sees an airplane for the first time. Uh, Louis Bolero's monoplane is there. And just to paint the picture here, imagine, and actually we should we should point out that there was no flying at this air show. This is not a typical air show, all right? So it's more of like an expo uh, where all of these companies are trying to show off their wares and they're trying to sell stuff to the governments. Yeah, uh, and but- Paris Air Show nowadays is huge. You get Lockheed Martin, you get Boeing and Airbus and, I mean, billion-dollar deals going down. You know, 1909, it's basically one a few guys, like, hung their airplanes up and— Others parked him and people walked around, basically. What he realizes here is that 
airplanes are super expensive, right? He's like, how am I going to afford any of these airplanes? That is until he finds out about this airplane called the Demoiselle. Yeah, and the Demoiselle was uh, the brainchild of Santos Dumont. Uh, Santos Dumont, or Dumont, if you, uh, I guess, want to do the French pronunciation. He was from Brazil. He's actually still considered to be the guy who invented uh, or, or was the first person to fly. Uh, the Brazilians still think he or credit him with that today. But the Demoiselle is a super lightweight airplane. It's made out of bamboo and fabric. It's got a 30-horsepower engine. I mean, it's more or less what we would call an ultralight today. Uh, it's incredibly dangerous, but it's the only thing in his price range, so it's right for him. And so Roland, he basically pools all his resources, uh, and he's making a little bit of money at the dealership, so he's able to kind of use that money, and he buys his first airplane, the Demoiselle. And this is actually, uh, it's completing a dream he's had, a reoccurring dream of flying. And so he's now ready in his Demoiselle. They get it parked outside uh, of an airfield just outside of Paris, and he's ready for his first flight. Yeah, so imagine that you're the, you've got this Demoiselle. It's, aviation is only five or six years old at this point, and you're ready to fly it for the first time. And he gets out onto the runway, and before he gets out onto the runway, which is just a grass strip, he fails to check final, and another aircraft is actually about to land, a Farman, and runs into him and completely destroys his airplane. He survives. He's fine. Uh, but I mean, can you imagine how embarrassing that must be at this point in aviation? There are so few airplanes on the planet <laughs> and he manages to run two together. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, not, we, we sometimes quote big sky theory. It wasn't big runway theory for him there. I mean, he taxis right in front of an airplane that's landing. Luckily for him though, the farming pilot is a good dude and he is also a rich dude. So he turns around and buys a completely new demoiselle for Roland, which is, very fortunate because there was no way he could have continued with his flight training, which, by the way, there wasn't really any training. It was just going out there and figuring it out. But he, he couldn't have continued if this guy didn't buy him an airplane, and we would have had someone else who could claim the title of first fighter pilot. But he is able to continue, and he actually does get this Demoiselle airborne. I think his first flight, he, he flies about the length of a football field, and it gets about 10 feet off the ground. Yeah, which is not crazy. I mean, at the time, the first Wright Brothers flight, which was just – six years prior, right? Uh, they flew less than the wingspan of a 747. So these are not transatlantic flights these guys are doing by any stretch of the imagination. Plus, you know, put yourself in Roland's shoes. He has no idea how to fly an airplane. He's had zero classes. So you don't want to go up a few hundred feet up in the air. You've never done this before. So he's kind of taking baby steps uh, in order to figure out how to fly. And something that happens as he's taking these baby steps, he's getting a little more com confident, is a promoter shows up at the airfield. And at this time, the airplane is this new invention. Uh, it's kind of a spectacle to see anyone fly. And so this promoter, he's he's trying to get pilots to just go put on local air shows. And one of his pilots fell out, so he's showing up at the air show or the airfield to try and get someone to fill in. And that's when he starts talking to Roland. And what really gets Roland in is he says we'll put you up in the nicest hotel we've got <laughs> which pilots are always very picky about which hotels we're, we're we're put in we're big on hilton points you gotta get those hilton points and so anyways roland agrees he goes he does um he flies in this air show and one of the cool th uh, my favorite fun facts is his like weather decision uh, initially was whether or not uh the smoke from his cigarette would rise straight up you know, if it did, he could fly. If it didn't, it was too windy for him. Uh, and while he sticks to that initially, 
pretty soon he starts flying in windier and windier conditions and he makes a name for himself by being the guy who flies in bad weather so he's reliable as an airshow pilot i think we should start briefing weather like that uh in the morning <laughs> for our briefs exactly where's the smoke from your cigarette gonna end That's up right so roland gets some good luck uh here uh as he's flying in these these air these shows and winning these competitions uh he basically gets a free plane when Santos Dumont decides that he is no longer going to fly anymore. Yeah, which we should point out, the reason he makes that decision is he almost dies flying in a demoiselle. Basically, the wings snap. He's at an air show in Europe. Uh, He falls, I mean, the airplane kind of tumbles about 80 feet to the ground. And Dumont says, I'm done with this, right? This is going to kill me. So he gives Roland... Uh, one of his own demoiselles because he knows this is the airshow pilot who flies my plane. And and Roland, by this point, he's a very experienced pilot. He's got about three hours in his logbook, uh, and he promptly crashes it again near yeah. Versailles, on a road near Versailles. Yeah, so Roland goes to pick up this demoiselle from Santos Dumont. He's flying the airplane back to his airfield when the engine quits, which is not a crazy thing at this time. This happens kind of all the time, actually, in these airplanes. And he's over Versailles when it happens. He tries to put it down. He gets snagged on a telegraph wire as he's trying to land. He falls the last, like, 20 feet. He thinks he's broken his back. Really, he's just broken his ass, a.k.a. his tailbone. Uh, But the guy can't be stopped. He's the second airplane he's crashed in five months. But he gets a third, and he just keeps flying and making a name for himself in these air shows. I don't think the FAA would uh, allow somebody to continue flying if they had three hours to their name and crashed two airplanes yeah, that's not a good start, uh, but it was a probably pretty average for the time. Maybe even for then, I guess it was more crashes than you would expect, but it doesn't slow him down, and pretty soon he gets an offer to go fly in the U.S., which he jumps at. He's always wanted to go to the U.S., so he goes, he starts flying in the U.S., and specifically he flies with the Moisant Flying Circus. So John Moisant and his brother are these two entrepreneurs, and these guys are pretty eclectic uh, kind of weird guys actually John was not like led revolutions in South America before he was an airshow pilot but they start putting on these air shows in the US and they do what's called a flying circus so they basically take the airplanes apart they put them on trains and then they go town to town rebuild the airplanes put on a big show for everybody sounds very safe yeah sounds very safe especially when you consider the frontier justice you could run into in the U.S. in the early 1900s. And so at the time, basically, you had different circuses that would go town to town. And a lot of these circuses were complete snake oil salesmen. They were ripoffs. They would either just flat out, like, take your money and run, or they would under-deliver. And so the air show ran into problems, or the flying circus ran into problems, because they would promise this air show, and then when the weather was bad, they couldn't fly. And literally, some of the crowds started burning down grandstands. They started to, like, shoot guns into the air and stuff. So you can imagine this, like, little Frenchman in, you know, West Texas somewhere with these guys shooting guns in the air, freaking out. Uh, And sometimes uh, Garros would literally just take off and go land someplace else because it was safer to do that than to try and deal with this crowd. It's surprising to me that people weren't more understanding because as an airline pilot, people are always very understanding when there's a weather cancellation. Yeah. So, you know, and I'm sure you know that you have about the same amount of hours Garros did, right? As far as your airline career. Mr. That's Trump. right. I have three, three hours <laughs> and uh, two major incidents. Yeah. Well, speaking of major incidents, hopefully you don't have any like uh, John was had. So, 
the tour kind of reaches ahead when they go to New Orleans, which for uh, Garros is like home away from home. I mean, you've got the French Quarter and Bourbon Street. Uh, there are stories of him entertaining some showgirls, uh, New Year's, and the guy, he's a Parisian playboy, right? And as the story goes, he wakes up, not alone, uh, on New Year's Day but from another pilot. He's basically banging on the door, and he goes, hey, John Mazant has crashed. And so they run out to the field, and Mazant was taking part of what was the, called the Michelin Cup, and it was an endurance race. Just see who can, not even an endurance race, but an endurance test, who can fly the longest. And so he had overloaded his plane with gas, and when he came into land a lot heavier than normal, uh, after flying like an eight-hour sortie or something, which was crazy for the time, uh, the plane stalled, crashed, and John Wazant died. And so literally the guy who's putting on this whole uh, flying circus is now dead at the airfield. So that's kind of the end of that, and he decides after this to head back to Europe. Yeah, I mean, they, the show did go on. They did a few more shows, but... Um, yeah, they, they go back to Europe, and that was pretty much—it's uh, hard to recover from that as far as your flying circus goes. And there's some new events that have started taking place uh, since he's been gone. Uh, air races uh, and kind of co- competitions for uh, max altitude and those types of things. So he starts competing in these events and may- actually making money this way because a lot of, a lot of these things were uh, maybe an island— uh, or something, a place, a place that an airplane had never been, and there were promoters out there that were paying cash prizes for anybody that could get in an airplane and accomplish X thing. Yeah, I think the big thing here is when he started experimenting with the air shows, he was still a guy who owned a car dealership, and that was his main uh, source of income but he just kind of was exploring this hobby. When he gets back from the U.S., like he's a professional pilot. He's making this thing work. So, yeah, he starts doing air shows, flying around uh, different islands and collecting the cash prizes. And um, the races he starts doing are like multi-day affairs where you're going from Paris to Rome. And it's crazy because they would load up the planes with fuel, but they knew they couldn't get from point A to point B, right? And so he would just fly until he ran out of gas and then – more or less crash land in farmer's fields. He didn't speak the language. He would have to mime, you know, getting gas. And then they would load up the, the planes and go. And one of my little favorite tidbits here is they would use the Michelin Tire Company's roadmaps to try and figure out where they're going. You know, that's the true IFR back in the day, I follow roads. And so they use these roadmaps. And when the Michelin Tire Company put these out, they would also put like where the best eateries are, you know, where the best restaurants are and they would start to star them. And so that's literally how the Michelin starring system for restaurants came out was these roadmaps. Just trying to get people to use their tires more. (laughs) Exactly. So like the highest of high, you know, fine dining is really graded off of a tire company whose mascot looks like the Pillsbury Doughboy, which is funny to me. So in addition to the air races, Roland also starts to get into other competitions, such as uh, setting altitude records. Uh, and this is where he has his first kind of bouts with hypoxia. Uh, he's getting up to 16,000, 17,000 feet. Uh, there's freezing temperatures, uh, and the air starts to get thin. And hypoxia is a pretty scary thing, uh, mainly because it starts to affect your judgment. And so uh, as your judgment starts to get affected, you become less able to make the correct decision to reverse whatever it is that's causing the hypoxia. Uh, so it's a pretty 
pretty scary thing. Yeah, it's a little bit like the boogeyman uh, for single-seat fighter pilots who, if we become capacitated, there's no one to take the airplane. And so something that affects your decision-making is pretty scary. And so they make us go into altitude chambers as part of pilot training and bring the altitude up to like 25,000 feet. You just breathe that ambient oxygen, which the content's the same percentage, but there's less quantity due to the pressure. And so, and now you're solving puzzles or yeah. like doing crosswords or something like that, some kind of cognitive task or like and motor skill task. I remember, yeah, my motor skill task was I had to write some sentence out over and over, a very simple sentence. And by like line 10, it's just scribbles because I, I was losing my fine motor function. And for me, I almost get like drunk, I get happy, a little euph- euphoric, which is the opposite of how you want to feel if you're in a very serious, deadly situation. Yeah, thankfully, I get. Anxious and confused, which <laughs> yeah. is which uh, is your normal state, anyways. That's right. Yeah. So you can't even tell if you're getting hypoxic. I think I might be hypoxic right now. <laughs> um, but anyway, so Rowan does this. He goes out down to Africa actually to fight the cold. So when he sets his altitude record, he does it from Africa. Um, unlike Icarus, who gets too close to the sun and his wings melt, when you're up at seventeen thousand feet in a uh, single-engine monoplane open cockpit it's negative temperatures out there guys are getting frostbite uh so he goes to africa to kind of start at least at a warmer temperature and then he starts using some supplemental oxygen this was his sort of secret no one else knew about he uses a little supplemental oxygen to get up to seventeen thousand feet and although he sets the world record it's very quickly beaten and then that record's beaten and he realizes this is sort of a fool's game because Every altitude record just gets beat by 10 feet like the next day. And so with this, he sets his eyes on a new feat. And this new feat that he sets for himself is flying across the Mediterranean. Uh, For this feat, he decides to go with a Moraine Solnier monoplane, uh, which is important because uh, this is the plane that he continues to fly uh, as we get into, spoiler alert, World War I starting, uh, and he starts flying in combat. Um, but this is a larger airplane with a longer range. It's able to carry more fuel, uh, and we're starting to get away from uh, the kite with lawnmower engine type situation. Yeah, it's that, not much that, better, that but it, with. it's a little bit better than a kite. Yeah. Uh, so September 23rd, 1913, uh, he's got his overloaded Moraine Saulnier that takes off from the French Riviera, and he starts to chart a course towards Tunisia. Uh, probably not a uh, Michelin star map to get across the Mediterranean there. Not a whole lot of roads there. Uh, so he takes off around sunrise, and his plane has 200 liters of fuel and 60 liters of castor oil. Uh, and he would need just about every drop of this to get across the Mediterranean. Uh, his engine actually quits twice during the flight, uh, but he's able to get it running again. And by 1.40 p.m., he lands in Tunisia, and that's about four, a 485-mile flight. At this time, he has exactly five liters of fuel left, and he proves that he made it across by taking a piece of newspaper that he's crumpled up and put inside his jacket for insu- extra insulation, and that newspaper has the date on it that it's been printed in France on that same day. Crossing the Mediterranean, as well as his other accomplishments, uh, garnered Roland the attention of the French president. And the president awarded 
Roland, La Legion of Honor, or the Legion of Honor, which was in a was a decoration that Napoleon had actually created a hundred years earlier for accomplishments both civil and military, and it's kind of awesome because Roland initially is named after a knight of France, and now the president is naming him a knight of France. This makes you a knight essentially of France when you get this honor, and. This is also a time in which it's kind of like a starry-eyed optimism of aviation where people are thinking, hey, if I had breakfast in France and I have, wiping tears away, Mr. Chow, if I had breakfast in France and dinner in Tunisia, you know, maybe this can break down some of the old animosities and we can see this reign of peace everywhere because of the airplane. Uh, But obviously that's not to be, you know, as Roland is thinking this and trying to use the airplane as an instrument of peace, Europe right now is racing to war. It's pretty wild that he was already considered a knight of France, and he is not even a fighter pilot yet. Not yet, but soon. But soon. In 1888, Otto von Bismarck said, One day the Great European War will come out of some damned foolish thing in the Balkans. His words proved prophetic. Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo on June 28, 1914, and all of Europe was at war by August. Roland was not a citizen of mainland France, so he couldn't be conscripted, but he volunteered to fight anyways. In just a few short weeks, the Germans had advanced to where they could see the Eiffel Tower on the horizon. Roland may have been from Reunion, but he was Parisian through and through, and he couldn't stand the idea of the City of Lights being occupied by the German Huns. The Germans were considered uncultured compared to Parisians. Fortunately for those in Paris, a French reconnaissance plane spotted a gap in the German lines. The French infantry was able to capitalize on this and poured into the gap and were able to force the Germans back to the Marne and Ain rivers. Once established there, the Germans dug in and the trench warfare associated with World War I began to take root. Yeah, and this was incredibly important. I mean, the Germans almost won the war in the first six weeks. They were about 20 miles from Paris. And it's really an airplane that sort of saved Paris and the Allies during World War I. And at this time, they didn't really even know how to use the airplane in war. They didn't know if it was even going to be useful. But the French were more you know, advanced than anyone else at the time. They had squadrons and whatnot. And it was this moment that really proved beyond a shadow of a doubt the efficacy of airplanes in combat. But it was still mostly just observation at this point. Yeah, and this, I mean, this advance was the Schlieffen plan, which was very rapid movement. Uh, through Belgium into France, uh, this plan that the Germans had. But they kind of outpaced their logistical train a little bit as well, right? Yeah, they did. And um, they ran into some problems as well, like the Belgians put up a stiffer defense than they thought. Also, them going into Belgium is what actually triggered England to enter the war. They did, England didn't have a pact like a non-aggression pact or a mutual defense treaty with France. They had what's called a friendly Uh, relations agreement, something like that. So they weren't necessarily going to enter the war until a neutral territory got invaded, and that was Belgium. So the Schlieffen plan backfired big time in that sense. But the reason the Germans needed to do it is because they were basically surrounded at the start of World War I. You have the Russian Empire to the east, which is huge, right? It's the biggest empire on the planet at this time, besides England. Uh, And then you have the French Empire directly to the west. And so because they were surrounded, the Schlieffen plan's a gamble. They sent 90% of their troops, essentially, to the west to knock French out real, uh, the France slash, France slash French army out real quick. And then they were going to turn around and then face the Russians. And it almost worked. 
again, it's an airplane that kind of saves the day. Roland was assigned to squadron MS-26, which is famous for being twice as dangerous as MS-13. <laughs> uh, actually, the MS stands for Moraine Saulnier. That's the plane that, that flown by Garros. It's the same plane that he flew across the Mediterranean. Uh, and everyone in the squadron has this plane. Early in the war, aircraft were only used for reconnaissance as, this, as the technology to make them true weapons of war had not yet been invented. The problem was how to best arm an aircraft. Most believed in outfitting two-seat aircraft with an observer who doubled as a gunner and had a machine gun that could swivel. Having been a single-seat pilot his entire career, the thought of adding someone to his airplane must have horrified Roland. Yeah, I think this is a good point to talk about the single-seat mentality. It's a mentality most fighter pilots have. Sorry, all you e-metal guys out there or, you know, F-18, you know, Maverick and Goose kind of setups, but most fighter pilots fly single-seat airplanes. I don't want anyone in the back seat. I don't want to be flying with someone else in my airplane. It's just me and the airplane. And I think, you know, having been a single-seat guy his whole life, that's how Roland also imagined it. And it kind of took a pilot, I think, uh, to understand when you get into a dogfight, it's actually the most natural thing in the world to aim an airplane at another airplane where it's actually, it's not easy at all. If I, there was someone in the back seat with a swivel machine gun, I'd have to kind of pull alongside another airplane. And then I'm trying to communicate over the wind noise. It would be an absolute mess basically to try and do uh, the version of air to air combat that everyone thought would have been the most natural. Yeah. And I think you, you also run into the problems of communication, right? Um, you know, how are you going to communicate to your gunner what your plan is? If you're the one who's controlling the gunning and the aircraft, uh, then you already know what's about to happen because you're the one making the decision. Yeah, plus the gunner wouldn't be able to shoot forward, really, because you the pilot's in the front, uh, You know, depending on the configuration, they kind of move the pilot around depending on the type of airplane. But typically the pilot was in the front, you know, the propeller in the front and everything else. And so that gunner in the back seat couldn't shoot forward, so you couldn't get behind another airplane. You'd have to kind of come up alongside them, which doesn't make any sense. The British tried something that is absolutely asinine. It's crazy, where they actually put the gunner in front of the propeller. So it's even hard to imagine, but basically the propeller, it looks like it's almost in the middle of the airplane. There's like, they call it a pulpit fighter, where there is a little box in front of the propeller, and the gunner was up there to try and fix that problem. But it was completely crazy you can imagine if you were the gunner there's a propeller like six inches behind you that could kill you you know if you just don't lean back kind of thing and you know in an age where landing accidents were very common it was an absolute death trap and a lot of gunners just pretty much refused to get in the damn thing and i think i would too yeah do you think if you finish last in your pilot training class in, in <laughs> yeah. 1915 then you get put, it's, it, put as the gunner on the front of an airplane in front of a <laughs> propeller yeah instead of rpas you now get uh the pulpit fighter. And basically the the British squadrons at the front line just sent the damn thing back. It's called the BE2. Um, and yeah, BE, too many bad ideas in that thing. Uh, but the, the real problem that they were trying to solve with this single seat fighter is how do you shoot a machine gun through the propeller? Because they basically figured out, and Roland was a proponent of, put this machine gun right in front of me. It'll shoot through the propeller. And that way, I'm aiming the airplane and I'm aiming the machine gun at the same time. And I can kind of see it all right down the line of the airplane. But how do you get it to shoot through the propeller is the problem. I mean, the propeller is not always directly in front of the machine gun, right? Exactly. And that's a, 
about where they take this thing. So in December of 1914, Roland gets leave because he's kind of this famous pilot to leave the front. He goes to the Marine Saunier factory with Jules Huey, and they try to come up with an interrupter gear. So the interrupter gear is attached to the engine, and then you have linkage that's attached to the machine gun. And basically, when the propeller is directly in front of the machine gun, it limits the machine gun from firing. And then when the uh, propeller passes in front and there's that gap of air before the next uh, propeller swings through, that's when the machine gun shoots. And that's what they're trying to create. But it's really, really difficult at the time. You know, something that compounds the difficulty is that you have these rotary engines, which if you can wrap your head around it, the entire engine spins on the Marine Saunier and all these other airplanes. The Gnome uh, rotary was actually a mining engine that would pump uh, like water out of mines is what they used to throw on these airplanes. And the entire engine is spinning, right? So it's hard to attach the linkage to that. And then also just like figuring out the timing in a very short period of time was very difficult. And they just basically blew through all these propellers. But because Roland wanted to prove the efficacy of a forward firing machine gun, they went to plan B which is completely crazy, but this is what they did. They attached metal strips to the back of the propeller and they kind of had grooves on them. And these metal strips were just at the point where the bullets would be striking the propeller. And the idea was, we'll just shoot our machine gun into our own propeller and most of the bullets will get through. The bullets that hit the propeller will just deflect off these metal strips and we'll just go with that. And so these bullets are going to deflect off, and, and they it was developed so that they're not going to deflect directly back and hit the pilot. But I'm sure a lot of these bullets hit parts of the plane. Uh, they kind of go everywhere, right? Yeah, it was. There are accounts of other pilots also flying this later on, and it was just terrifying. You know, there are people who shot off their own propellers, and there are people who had bullets just ricocheting back at their face as they're you know also trying to fly an airplane and shoot down another airplane. After a couple of months of poor weather, Garros was back at the front with MS-26 with his modified Moraine Saulnier with the machine gun mounted on there and the metal plates on the propeller. On April 1st, 1915, he took off on All Fool's Day on what most people assumed would be a fool's errand. Roland spotted a German Albatross observation plane, closed in under fire from the observer in the back of the Albatross, and opened fire from about 100 feet away. He unloaded a 24-round canister in about two seconds. His Moraine Saulnier shook violently as the bullets ricocheted off his own propeller, but the steel plates held. The Albatross crew must have been shocked and began an immediate steep right-hand turn. Luckily for the Germans, the rounds had passed harmlessly through the mostly hollow areas between the wing spars, shredding the fabric but little else. The only critical areas on a plane at that time were the fuel tanks, engine, and crew. So there were a lot of areas that you could shoot directly through the plane without having anything happen. Following the Albatross, Garros reloaded with one hand while flying with the other, turning inside the bigger Albatross's turn circle and firing another 24-round burst. These rounds found the Albatross engine, which quickly caught fire. The dying Albatross's turn increased into a death spiral, trailing smoke the entire way down. The pilot had taken a bullet in the back of the head and died instantly, which was in many respects a more merciful, merciful death than the Observer. The Observer fought the controls to pull out of the dive, but with the pilot's dead weight slumped over the controls and the airplane on fire, the Observer was only able to bring the nose up momentarily. The Albatross had suffered too much. 
Eventually, the plane succumbed to the damage, nosed over, and crashed behind French lines. To paraphrase Ed Coblet in the first fighter pilot, the crash was, quote, a funeral pyre, wind blowing eastward, carrying with it the spirits of two human beings home to Germany. Roland had proved the efficacy of a forward-firing machine gun. The Corsair now had his ship. The Knight had his steed, and Roland was no longer just a pilot. He was the world's first fighter pilot. After he landed, because the Germans landed on the, or crashed, on the French side of the lines, Roland got a car and went out to the crash site. Everything of value had already been looted off the airplane, and the only thing left were the bodies and the debris. They could see the pilot, who had clearly been shot in the back of the head, and that was one thing, but seeing the observer among the wreckage kind of just burnt and crushed from the crash was pretty sickening for Roland to see what he had done. But he reminded himself that this crash was on the was on French land. It was on the French side of the lines. Like, they were in his country, and he was resolved to kick them out of his country. And so he continued to fly. He shot down two more crews uh, later that month in April. But after shooting down his third crew, he went to the German side of the lines to look for observers and, you know, these observation planes to shoot down. And he either had a clogged fuel line or was shot down by the Germans. It depends on who you reference here to see how he ended up getting uh, forced down on the German side of the lines. The French say he just had a problem with his airplane. The Germans say that he was shot down by ground fire. But either way, he ends up having to make an emergency landing, something he's pretty familiar with at this point, on the German side of the lines. And what his priority is at this point is actually to burn the airplane. He doesn't want to, uh, to let the secret out of this amazing invention of steel plates on the back of his propeller. Uh, but although he tries to light the plane on fire, it's damp from having flown through the weather, and it basically doesn't light fast enough. And he's taken prisoner at gunpoint from German infantry, and there was some sergeant out there who noticed that something was different, and he preserves the airplane. And that airplane is then brought to Anthony Fokker, who is tasked to look at these things and come up with a German solution because Roland had definitely gotten the attention of the Germans by shooting down three observation planes in a month. So at this point, Roland is taken prisoner, and now he has to make the transition from being this famous pilot who's a Parisian playboy uh, and now he's becoming a POW. Not an easy transition. He maintained a posture of defiance against the Germans throughout his imprisonment and he was shuffled from camp to camp. Eventually he ended up at the fortress of Zondorf near the Polish border. I love how a lot of like modern pop culture references of evil guys or like the villain they come from these German sounding names like Ganondorf and Zelda and, and all these, uh, I just kind of exposed myself a little bit, but you know, I just, when I read this, a lot of the names remind me of evil guys from like kids video games and stuff. And I, I guess it's like a lot of our evil references are just from the Germans, I guess, not surprisingly. I mean, I had a professor one time that talked about how, you know, that any argument has gone off the rails when somebody uh, mentions the Nazis. That's true. And I think it's just such an easy target. Uh, yeah. This, you're, there is a certain sound to it, though, like he was at the fortress of Zondorf. It sounds like science fiction almost. So as the years dragged on, this prison in particular garnered a vicious reputation, and Roland was eventually transferred to a prison of Nadenfrei, uh, which is in Alsace. That's important because Alsace-Lorraine is in the west. So now he went from basically in Poland 
and now he's near the French border. All right, so he's closer to the French border now, and outside the war is raging on, uh, but inside the prison, these months turn into years, Roland's morale starts to plummet. Roland would write a letter to his lover in Paris and say, quote, screw reasonably, but screw. Follow your tastes and your instincts. Live free for both of us. Maybe that's the line that should have been written on the walls of the French Open. Hey, at least it's honest. So but although, although it seems like he's given up, it's at Naden Fry that he seems to have gotten a second lease on life. I guess Naden Fry was a school or something before it was a prison. Uh, and so, of all things, it has tennis courts. And Roland befriends the commandant of the camp, and he's able to acquire a racket and some balls from the Red Cross. Yeah, and importantly, inside that racket uh, was some maps and some other items that he was able to get to set himself up to escape. And I, I wonder if maybe the French Open is somehow an allusion to the fact that Roland Garros escaped uh, because he had items hidden inside of a tennis racket. But uh, I wasn't able to, any, to actually uh, confirm that. Either way, he gets these items that he set up to escape. But the big problem he had was he's still going to be, if he escapes the camp on the German side of the lines and he doesn't speak German. And that's when he links up uh, with one fellow prisoner who's from the region of Alsace. And the importance there is Alsace-Lorraine is this area in eastern France now that was fought over by the Germans and the French. And it's culturally a mix. Uh, it was actually, before World War One part of Germany. Uh, they won it in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. And... Basically, there's a lot of spy, like German spies and French spies that are brought or um, kind of recruited from this area because they typically both speak French and German and have French and German loyalties or a mix of one or the other. And basically, Roland is uh, linked up with this fellow prisoner named Ansem Marshall. That's probably the best I can do with that name. But he speaks fluent German. And now Roland has his way out, essentially, or his uh, kind of... German-speaking prisoner who can help him get to the border. And we're not sure exactly who gave Roland all the help. It's probably like a CIA equivalent of, you know, the French government. But he's able to get German uniforms. And him and uh, Ansem basically walk right out the front of this German POW camp with Ansem speaking perfect German as an officer and basically commanding guys to step out of his way, which they do. And then Roland and Anselm basically run out um, and begin this epic journey through Cologne and all these other big uh, German cities in the western part of Germany. And they would sleep at cemeteries at night and then take trains during the day all the way up to the Dutch border where they were able to cross the border uh, into the Netherlands, which remained um, neutral throughout the conflict. And once there, uh, on Valentine's Day of 1918, after three years of captivity, Roland was finally free. So after three years of captivity, Roland returns to France, but he's kind of a shell of his former self at this point. He's malnourished, his hair is thinning, his eyesight has gotten bad, from, probably from that malnourishment. He's reserved, he's melancholy, which seems perfectly normal after spending three years as a POW. And back in France, this was kind of a crossroads for him. The, the French government has recognized at this point the propaganda value of fighter pilots. So rather than taking a fighter pilot and putting him back in a fighter, they decide to send him on a press tour. 
So they send him to America on this press tour uh, in order to raise support for the war. However, once Roland gets to America, it's clear that the, the suave playboy that once existed there is not the same anymore. He's not the smooth-talking guy uh, that they thought they had sent to America, and he really just wants to go back. After returning to Paris, but before he got to the front, uh, Roland enjoyed a brief dalliance with the dancer Isadora Duncan, and she's this beautiful, exotic dancer at the time. And in her memoirs, she writes that one night, around midnight in Paris, at the Place de la Concorde, which is right at the foot of the Champs-Élysées, she danced for Roland in a fountain. And so it's just her dancing in this fountain, this beautiful dancer, and Roland is sitting there watching this thing happen while World War One is still raging, you know, just tens of miles uh, away from Paris. And to me, this that like one scene has everything about like the myth of being a fighter pilot, but also the realities of being a fighter pilot kind of wrapped up into one. You know, you have this playboy, he's in Paris, there's this beautiful dancer in a fountain form, but at the same time, he's this shell of his former self. He's been a POW for three years. He's killed people. You know, part of the thing they don't really talk about, but he's sort of depressed when he gets back is most of his friends are dead, right? Most of the guys he flew with in MS-26, they're gone because they were killed in World War One, And it's all that is sort of wrapped up in the knowledge that he's about to go back into the front in a couple days and start flying again and put his life on the line. But it's just that one moment to me where I feel like that night, to be a fly on the wall that night would just be incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's that it's almost like that last little bit of his Playboy personality is kind of like, it's like the end of a candle being burned right right there. Exactly. Yeah, he's like trying to relive it, but probably couldn't quite get there you know what I mean it was probably everything he dreamed of for those three years but it probably didn't hit the same way that he maybe thought it would exactly and like I said it's probably what he was dreaming of for three years in a German cell right yeah and I think you know now he he goes back to the front and things there are not the same either right yeah they're not I mean when he gets back to the front in 1918 there have been like leaps and bounds in terms of the evolution of the airplane. You know, when he started flying uh, in 1914, it was still the Marine Sonnier monoplane. They couldn't figure out the interrupter gear. But when he goes back to his squadron, it's no longer MS-26, it's SPA-26, which stands for the SPAD. And now instead of the underpowered Marine Sonnier with deflector plates, the squadron is flying SPAD-12s and... Uh, it's got a V8 engine with 220 horsepower. It's a biplane. It's got two synchronized um, Vickers machine guns uh, that are now mounted behind the propeller. And it's basically like he's, you know, jumping up 10 years of evolution in the airplane, even though it's only been three. And and then probably the biggest thing is that, like you said, all of the pilots are different, right? Like none of yeah. his friends that he left are still there. Exactly. And it, from his point of view, he... When the war started, he was this famous pilot who was probably the best person in the world at flying the Marine Saunier. Now he's starting from scratch. You know, he's a wingman in this squadron. He doesn't understand the tactics, which have also evolved greatly. It's not just these 1v1, you know, fighter pilot versus this guy in an observation plane. They're flying as formations. There's these mass formations of, like, multiple airplanes that are doing synchronized attacks. And he's got to relearn all that and learn how to fly the SPAD, which he does in the matter of a few weeks because he's still a fighter pilot. But it's a huge jump for him. And, and also navigate all of the personalities in the squadron. I mean, I think so much of 
being an effective fighting unit is having trust amongst the members. And that takes time and experience to build. And for him to just show up and not know any of these guys and not know who's who, you know, who's, who's good in the airplane, who's not, who can he trust? Uh, I, I imagine that would be really difficult. Yeah, but a good way to earn people's trust is to do exactly what Roland did, which is what he went up into combat uh, with about a month of flying this thing, not even. Uh, and on October 2nd, he got his fourth confirmed kill. And later that day, he would claim a fifth kill, but it would never be confirmed. So ace status would elude him, ace being five total kills. But it is crazy. I mean, he's got a few weeks of flying. Now he's in combat, and he's shooting down the Germans. Now, three days after Roland's fourth and fifth unconfirmed kill, he's flying uh, as a squadron commander's wingman over the Ardennes forest when they are when they attacked a lone observation plane behind German lines. Now, this, I imagine, looked very familiar to Roland because three years ago, before he went off and became a POW, it was perfectly normal for these observation planes to be flying by themselves, and uh, there was no reason for them to do otherwise. Uh, But at this point, uh, maybe his commander should have seen this for what it was, and what it was was a trap. Uh, So at this point, the Germans attacked with at least seven Fokkers that were orbiting nearby. Yeah, and these Fokkers had developed tactics over the course of the war and were able to split the Frenchmen and prevent them from providing mutual support, which is something that was one of the main reasons you fly with a wingman. He can keep your six clean and you can keep his six clean. But they were unable to do that because they got split. Outnumbered and outgunned over enemy territory, Gross flew and fought for his life. And although these fights were frantic, they could often last five or ten minutes or more until everyone ran out of gas or bullets. Uh, French civilians from the town of St. Morel watched the fight and reported seeing a spat explode. The most likely cause would have been an incendiary round hitting Garros's fuel tanks. The man who had survived numerous plane crashes, high-altitude flights, crossed the Mediterranean, shot a machine gun into his own propeller, survived three years of a POW, or as a POW, was killed on October 5th, 1918. He was a day shy of his 30th birthday and just over a month away from seeing the Germans sign an armistice to end World War I. He didn't need to be flying that day. The French government wanted him to be on a press tour over the Americas, but he chose to return to the front lines because he was a fighter pilot. Roland's body was recovered and laid to rest in the town of Vouzier under a stone obelisk. Today he's often misremembered as a great tennis player, but the truth is stranger than the fiction. He was a fearless aviator, a Corsair, and a fodder pilot. But for all that, I like to remember him as the man by the fountain. Fight History is hosted by Brian Burke and Mark Silvers. Written by Brian Burke and produced by Mark Silvers. Music is by Cody Martin. Check out our blog at www.fighthistory.com. Thank you.